What if you could have a film critic, film festival director, film publicist, and fellow filmmaker guide you with your film's PR and marketing journey from pre-production to post? I'm Kevin Sampson, and my online course, PR for the Indie Filmmaker, does just that. In this course, I'm going to teach you how to set up your film to engage an audience and build a community long before you call action. I'll show you how to approach critics to make them aware of your film like publicists do. And as a director of two film festivals, I won't just teach you hacks and secrets to reduce entry fees, but how you can use the festival circuit to create buzz around your film. I'm a huge supporter of diverse storytelling and film, and I believe the most unique voices come from indie filmmakers. That's who I've supported over the years with my show, Picture Lock, whether on TV or on radio. With as much experience as I've had as an independent filmmaker myself, critic, publicist, and festival director, I realize that most indie filmmakers just need access to the knowledge that big firms provide to achieve success. So in this course, I'm going to demystify some of the process and give you everything I know and a behind the scenes look at the sides of the business you don't always see. So if you're an indie filmmaker that's looking to change the game with your film's PR and marketing, make sure you check out PR for the Indie Filmmaker. Head on over to PRForTheIndieFilmmaker.com and get a free preview of the course, PR for the Indie Filmmaker. Get your film seen, build community, and become an army of one. It's Picture Lock on WERA Arlington 96.7 FM. Welcome to another episode of the world-famous award-winning show. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson, filmmaker, film festival director, film critic, film publicist, and lover of film and TV. You can find all the back episodes and so much more at PictureLockShow.com. As this airs, we're in our second day of the 2018 DC Black Film Festival. If you live in the DC area, stop listening and come over to Southeast DC. Go to dcbff.org to find out more info and get tickets or look, just come in person to the Miracle Theater. We're gonna have a great time. Now, this will be my final installment of interviews with DC Black Film Festival filmmakers. Hard to believe the fest is here, but knowing we're in full swing, I saved some of the films you can see tonight and tomorrow as this airs. I'm leading off with an interview with Deanna Winkler, one of the co-directors of United Skates. This film is playing tonight as a part of our Making Black Lives Matter through film panel. You absolutely want to make it out for this film in our panel after, moderated by WHUR's Easy Street with some incredible panelists. Speaking of incredible, Sanford Green is going to be in the house tomorrow at the DC Black Film Festival for a fireside chat moderated by WERA's own Ulysses E. Campbell and for our closing night conversation on the rise of the black superhero. Now, Sanford has worked professionally in the comic illustration and related industries for over 15 years working for mainline publishers such as Marvel, DC, Dark Horse, and Image Comics. Before we talk to Sanford during our closing night session, we have a few films and you can hear from those filmmakers right now. I have writer-director of Stevie's Aliens, Austin Harris, director and animator of BPVB, Omar Lewis, and director of The Girl With No Brain, Royce Adkins. 
all great interviews with folks doing it big in animation and sci-fi. And that's all ahead on Picture Lock. Hey everybody, this is Sarah Bunting, the editor-in-chief of TomatoNation.com and East Coast editor of Previously.tv, and you're listening to Picture Lock. You're listening to Picture Lock. I'm Kevin Sampson. And when America's last standing roller rinks are threatened with closure, a community of thousands battle in a racially charged environment to save an underground subculture, one that has remained undiscovered by mainstream media for generations, yet has given rise to some of the world's greatest musical talent in the film United Skates. I have the film's co-director producer on the line with me, Deanna Winkler. Deanna, welcome to Picture Lock. Thank you so much for having me. Deanna, it's my pleasure. I cannot wait to crack into United Skates, which will be playing at the DC <laughs> Black Film Festival Friday night, right before our Making Black Lives Matter through film panel. Uh, but Deanna, the first question that I always start out with, when did you first fall in love with film? Oh, um, well, actually, I didn't realize at all that I wanted to work in film. I just knew that I wanted to have a job that was fulfilling and making a difference in the world in some way. So I actually uh, started out working uh, in political science, and um, I was interning at the United Nations in Nepal and Bhutan um, in that part of the world, and they... Um, it, I, I just, um, I felt this disconnect between where I was living, which was actually with Tibetan refugees in their home and learning the language, uh, and my bosses who lived behind uh, closed gates and drove big SUVs and didn't speak the language. And I just thought, this this isn't connecting with the people and this isn't helping in the way that I want to be helping and, and maybe this isn't the right job for me. And right around the same time, um, I was volunteering at an orphanage where they asked if I would shoot a promotional video to help them raise money for the school. And um, I said, oh, I, I don't have any idea how to, how to do that. And they said, but you're American. Don't all Americans know how to make movies? <laughs> so I um I uh, I just said, well, you know, I can try, and I ended up shooting them a short a short promo film that raised them an awful lot of money. And I thought, hey, uh, there's something to this. Maybe there's a way that I can combine my love of of art that I've always had with with making a difference. And that was kind of when I shifted gears and got into social issue filmmaking. You know, I always find it interesting asking that question to uh, documentary filmmakers and, like you said, especially those that are interest, interested in uh, social issues and um, how generally it seems like you guys are never, like, f filmmakers to begin with, but you found that film was a good way to, uh, you know, tell stories. And um, I think there's something about film that... It's universal. Like everyone has seen a film in their lifetime. And, you know, um, I think it's also a great way of giving you medicine with a little bit of a spoonful of sugar. So I find that fi sugar, fascinating. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, they say that there's no more powerful moment than right when the lights come up at the end of a good film. It's when people are, you know, really in their heart. They've either 
been taken on a journey and care about the people they saw, care about the world that they learned about. Um, and it's a moment that you can really take advantage of to, to create change. So. Oh, man, you're you're talking about one of my favorite parts. I, I mean, between, you know, the lights going down and then, like, the lights coming up, like, those two moments are really magical. And especially, like you said, if, if it's a great film and everybody is clapping, right, um, it just lets you know, man, there's something really here. So if you could, Deanna, um, yeah. let's get your backstory. Like, how did you break into the industry? I think you kind of hit that already. But maybe you could just talk about in terms of United Skates. When did you decide that, hey, I want to make this film? Sure. So when I came back from living abroad and decided I wanted to work in film where I had no uh, background at all, um, I decided actually to, to um, that I wanted to you know learn how to do it properly and go to school for it. But I had too much debt from uh, undergrad and couldn't afford to go to film school. So <laughs> I, I give yes. this tip to everyone that um, education is free in Europe. All you have to do is learn the language. And so I actually um, moved to France as an au pair, as a nanny for a French family. And um, over that year, I learned French, got fluent, and then went to film school there for free. <laughs> so oh my uh, gosh stop I, uh, wait pause yo <laughs> dropping jewels <laughs> Deanna Winkler that 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 is incredible wow so you learned <laughs> French in one year yep yep I worked my butt off I didn't speak any I could say my name is Deanna that's it when I got there <laughs> wow so uh yeah it was it was it was a really hard year but you know the family I lived with didn't speak English the kids I was nannying didn't speak English so um it was a crash course you learn quick when you have to uh and uh, it's the same in Germany Spain Portugal Sweden all all of Europe so the way to break the system if you can <laughs> get yourself to Europe I got <laughs> it. for free. But uh, so I came back to the States after um, having lived a really long time abroad between Asia and then uh, France. And um, I got an internship uh, pretty quickly at the Sundance Film Institute in Los Angeles. So um, I worked for free five days a week full time um, and then worked on the weekends as a celebrity nanny to pay my bills. <laughs> Uh, and then uh, quickly got hired actually by Sundance and became a full-time staff member. And from there, um, I think I worked there for over five years to work my way up um, within the documentary film department. And basically what they do is they give grants and support and help to filmmakers like I wanted to be, uh, who are making a, making a difference in the world and making great films. And so I, I learned while I was there, you know, what gets funding and why and what makes a great film and why and how to be a responsible filmmaker. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll, I actually think I learned more in that internship than I did in film school. Um, and uh, from there, I actually got hired by the Tribeca Film Institute in New York. So I, f I moved from L.A. to New York and um, did a similar job, but on the narrative side. So I worked um, with Tribeca All Access, and uh, um, my job primarily was looking for underrepresented filmmakers, people of color, women, LGBT, um, and supporting them and helping them to learn how to make a great application and a great film so they could get 
uh, funding and, and money. And, and, and at some point I just thought, you know what, a lot of years have gone by where I've been supporting the arts, supporting these filmmakers and these great projects, but I've never made one on my own. And if I don't try now, then it's going to be too late. So I actually um, left Tribeca, um, became a broke, struggling artist with no health insurance and uh, (laughs) made made United Skates, which was my um, first ever feature film. You're listening to Picture Lock. I'm Kevin Sampson. I'm definitely uh, just in awe talking to hustler and fighter, <laughs> the co-director and producer of United Skates, Deanna, Deanna Winkler. Deanna, oh, man. I, I, let's, let's get into United Skates because we only got so much radio time. <laughs> However, you know, I, we were talking about this off air, and I was just saying how, like, I love to – kind of get backstory on uh, the filmmaker because it helps me to appreciate the film that much more. And so the uh, quality and care that went into creating United Skates and just hearing your story, um, that's that's really inspirational. So folks, you got to come check out United Skates uh, Friday night right before our Making Black Lives Matter through film panel. Um, you don't want to miss it. Oh, man. So, yeah, Deanna, let's get into United Skates. Um, In your own words, uh, just let the audience know what it's about and what inspired you to create the film. Well, um, it's a jam-packed film. It's about a lot of things. But, um, you know, overall, it's really uh, a look at the celebratory and beautiful world of African-American roller skating. Um, I did not plan to make this film. I'm not black and I don't skate. <laughs> and so there was, you know, really nothing uh, that made sense about me being the person to make this film. Um, and my co-director, Tina Brown, who's not on, on um, with us today, but she's um, a Vietnamese Australian. So once again, no connection. <laughs> uh, and uh, we, we were, we were making a different film. Actually, we were, uh, shooting uh, some of the roller skaters in Central Park who um, are uh, a bit a bit older. They, they skate to um, more disco music. Some of them have mullets. Some of them balance water bottles on their heads. Like it's a really entertaining um, kind of slice of life subculture about uh, this, what we thought was the end of the era of roller skating. And when these guys go, uh, that will be it. And so uh one day when we were filming out there, these younger skaters came up to us and asked what we were doing with our cameras. And we said, we told them and they said, skating's not dead. It just went underground. And if you want to see legit skating, you should follow us uh, to a skate party. And we were like, a skate party? What's that? And But we followed them on an overnight bus to Richmond, Virginia from New York City. And uh, when we got there, it was the middle of the night and there were over a thousand people at this tiny roller rink and the line was around the block. They had their own music, their own fashion, their own skate styles. And, um, and we, we were just blown away by what we saw. And, you know, actually at first, um, going back to what I said before about how deeply it had been ingrained in me to be a responsible filmmaker. Um, and am I the right person to be telling this story? Everything in me said I was not. And so, you know, we actually put our cameras down and we just very humbly were, 
you know, grateful to be in the space and grateful to meet these, these um, people. And we started talking to these skaters and everyone we talked to was from somewhere else. There was someone we spoke with from Philadelphia, from Atlanta, from Baltimore, from New York, from LA. Um, and we said, how, how did you all know to get here? And, and what is this? And, and, and basically we just started learning that, um, all of their local rinks are closing in all of these cities. And this is a, a culture that has gone on for generations and generations and evolved and grown. And, and, um, you know, each city has its own unique skate style, its own unique music, its own unique history, um, and they're all uh, at risk of disappearing. And so one way to hold on to the tradition and the culture was to have these meetings where they would all come together uh, once a month, sometimes even more than that now, at a different rink in a different city and, and um, connect with each other. So um, we had stumbled into one of those uh, magical evenings, and that was kind of... Uh, the beginning of our adventure. <laughs> you know, uh, Deanna, y- your story is almost like, like this is, I don't know, you know how sometimes this is what you say, you couldn't put this in a movie, you couldn't write this. Like, the, <laughs> the fact, man, uh, I'm still getting over the fact that, you know, you became an au pair just so that you could learn filmmaking in France, not knowing the language. <laughs> and now you're just like, uh, you know, shooting a documentary in Central Park. You get tapped on the shoulder, get on a bus to go down to Richmond, Virginia. to shoot. Like this is, yeah. it almost doesn't make sense. But it, it's, again, feeding into why, like, <laughs> wow, United Skates, like, I like it even more now. Um, so, <laughs> so, yeah, like, uh, so one of the things I wanted to talk about in, in terms of the film and the reason that um, I felt that it needed to be, uh, the the showcase film before our panel is um, one of the things that you do is not only d- is the film entertaining the cinematography is uh, amazing you know a slow motion focusing on footwork and you know all the different uh, cool skating tricks that uh, these skaters are doing but it also tells a, a story and that story being that you know how much the skating rinks meant and in some ways mean to the communities that they exist in. Um, And so could you kind of, as you've been doing, kind of let the audience know, as well as myself, like when along the journey of creating this film, did you realize, wow, like these skating rinks mean a lot to these people? I mean, obviously, if you said like folks from, you know, all over the country were coming to Richmond, Virginia. Maybe that was when it was. But at what point did you notice and realize, yo, this is like bigger than I thought? You know, it's a really good question because as a filmmaker, you're looking for a project that isn't just, um, you know, a shiny, beautiful object, but has depth and meaning and importance. And when we first saw um, this, amazing world of skating we thought you know wow this this is something beautiful to watch but is there a story there is there you know in my case a social issue that I could get behind behind this beauty um and uh it was actually only when the skaters uh, it was a collaboration from the start with the community we, we we wouldn't have made this film unless it was with the support and um and collaboration of, of the skaters themselves. But um, what started happening was 
uh, each city that we would travel to to learn about the uniqueness of that city and that history and that culture. Um, the skater would say that we spoke, she would say, oh, well, our night is on a Thursday or, you know, in Ohio, our night is on a Tuesday or in the city, our night is on a Friday. And we said, what do you mean your night? And uh, basically what we realized is that they meant black night and that all of these rinks that we were going to were still segregated and they weren't called that anymore. They're now called code words like soul night or R&B night. Um, and then white nights are called things like top forties night or family night. And um, we, we, we just couldn't believe that that was still the case in, you know, 20, what was it when we started 14. <laughs> um, and so we, uh, we just started digging deeper from there. And that's when I started to learn that, um, you know, after this, um, the civil rights movement, when laws were changed and uh, spaces were forced to integrate, you know, just because laws are made doesn't mean that the people are ready for them. And, um, and so, of course, a lot of white flight started to happen um, in public swimming pools. They all got closed down. And that's when, you know, backyard swimming pools began to come out and uh, amusement parks started to close down. People didn't want to dance together. They didn't want to. I actually found out that fake news has been going on a very long time um, because we did a really powerful interview with a woman who who isn't actually in the film, but who gave us a lot of insight, uh, who shared that um, you know, there were there were all of these reports of, of African American men raping white women, or of, of African Americans having diseases that would get in the pools, or things like that. And then, you know, of course, none of it was true. Um, but it was it was fear tactics. It was fear tactics to scare people and keep people separate, um, much like today. So, um, anyway, I digress. But but um, the the um, the time in history when all of these spaces started closing these public swimming pools and amusement parks because of white flight, roller rinks uh, saw the trend and didn't want to be closed down in the process as well. And so they decided to keep their nights separate. And um, that was when um, the, the changing of the name started happening to have nights, you know, very clearly signifying black nights versus white nights. And if African-American skaters went on a white night, they'd be told they didn't have their size roller skates. They Sometimes they would actually hire white thugs to trip them, hurt them, get them off the floor. And uh, if the black skaters would push back and, and say, you know, this guy tripped me or did this thing, they'd say, see, when African-Americans are in the building, there's violence. And it just, you know, perpetuated the stereotype. And so ultimately what happened was Black night stayed black and white night stayed white and two totally different cultures emerged. And um, today uh, there isn't a whole lot of skating in white culture. There's a little bit of derby, but that's not really the same and a little jam skating, but mostly it's just a throwback disco party on wobbly rental skates if they go to the rink. But if, you know, on, on these black nights, it, this culture has not only continued, but grown and evolved and become something so beautiful and uh and yet on um on white nights there's no no policing as well which we noticed and on black nights there was always cops um you know uh, metal detector tests at the door all all kinds of things that were not on the other nights and so uh that was kind of when we really realized that there's a whole lot going on inside these roller rinks um besides the skating itself and um 
you know, Tina and I just really became uh, investigative journalists and tried to reveal, like you said earlier, the, the sugar with the medicine, the, the sugar being in this case, the, the, the beauty of this, this world and the celebration of the skating. And then of course the medicine being that in a way this film is roller skating is just a metaphor for, um, you know, racism in America and in the many, many spaces that are going through similar problems right now. All right. Uh, so Deanna, it's official. Uh, I'm going to have to carry this over into a picture lock unlocked interview for the podcast. Uh, right now, folks, you're listening to <laughs> Picture Lock. I'm talking with the co-director, producer of United Skates, Deanna Winkler. Guys, as you can tell just from what she said, this documentary uh, is very important. It's very powerful. We hope that you definitely come out uh, to the D.C. Black Film Festival and check it out tonight, uh, August 17th. It'll be right before our Making Black Lives Matter through film panel. Uh, Deanna, if you could, uh, for the radio audience, uh, how can folks follow the film uh, as well as find out more about it online, social media? Sure. So we are frantically trying to keep up with all of the screenings uh, <laughs> coming up this fall. We have overlapping screenings all through September, October, and November, both in the U.S. and abroad. Uh, you can find all of that on our website, which is unitedskatesfilm.com, uh, and then click on screenings, and all of the screenings are there. If you want to get involved, you can reach out to us. We're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, we're on Twitter. Um, and we are trying to uh, create a small movement. Actually, uh, we're going to be screening during the uh, Congressional Black Caucus as well in September, we hope. Um, and during that time, we're going to be speaking with uh, a lot of different members of Congress who can hopefully help to protect these roller rinks from continuing to close. So if you want to be a part of the rally, if you want to hold a protest sign, come find us, come join us. We need all the bodies we can. Awesome. Co-director and producer Deanna Winkler of United Skates. Deanna, thanks so much for coming on Picture Lock. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. All right, folks. Uh, if you uh, subscribe to the podcast, you can hear the full Wink interview with Deanna Let's take a quick break for promos. Stay tuned. What's up, guys? Thank you so much for listening to and supporting Picture Lock. I absolutely love film, as you know, and have given my life to studying the medium. As a filmmaker, I understand what it takes to make a film from its inception to the big screen. As a critic, I've been able to see the business of film from the marketing side of things. And as a film festival director, I've been able to see the distribution side, but more importantly, the enormous amount of talented filmmakers out there creating and crafting stories from their heart. And that's why I've started Picture Lock PR. If you're a filmmaker or producer looking to engage audiences and create relevance around your latest or upcoming project, head over to PictureLockPR.com. We can help you with your film's publicity from pre to post-production. Get more information and see the clients we've helped in the past at PictureLockPR.com. PictureLock PR. Finally, a partner as passionate as you. Picture Lock's question of the week last week was, what's your favorite movie that tackles issues we need to deal with in society? 
I'm basically recording this two days after posting, so it hasn't been out long enough, at least for a picture lock post, to gain traction. So the one answer on the gram, at Dr. Underscore Sweet Underscore EJ, said, A Time to Kill, Racism, Rape, and the Injustice in the Justice System. I certainly appreciate that answer. That was a tough movie to watch, but uh, as she said, it hit so many different points that we definitely need to tackle. And folks, you can actually hear Dr. James tonight as she's one of the panelists on our Making Black Lives Matter Through Film panel. (laughs) Just wanted to get another DCBFF plug in there. This week's question, in light of Black Klansmen coming out last week, what's your favorite Spike Lee film? Spike has definitely been one of uh, my inspirations coming up in the film industry. And uh, I, I, I gotta, I don't think, yeah, I don't think we've talked Spike on the show yet. So I definitely want to figure out what's your favorite Spike Lee film. Leave a message 60 seconds or less on what your all-time favorite Spike Lee film is. And I'm going to do my best to play it on the show next week. 202-350-1351. You can always let me know on social media or email me at picturelockshow at gmail.com. And I'll read your answer next episode. Hey, everybody. This is writer-producer of The Wedding Scene, Savannah Kopp, and you are listening to Picture Lock. You're listening to Picture Lock. I'm Kevin Sampson, and in Stevie's Aliens, Greg, an aspiring writer whose dreams are shattered when he's rejected from his top-choice college, is reinvigorated after he sees what he believes is a UFO. I have the film's writer-director on the line, Austin Harris. Austin, welcome to Picture Lock. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. First question I always start out with, Austin, when did you first fall in love with film? Um, my, especially, so my whole family, especially my mom and aunt were really, uh, avid film fans and they growing up, like starting in like first, second and third grade, they would show me a lot of classic movies and a lot of Spielberg movies. And so that's when it definitely started. Um, but when I was in 10th grade, I watched Close Encounters of the Third Kind for the first time. And that, that was when I knew that I loved film and that I, really wanted to be involved in it because I saw, you know, Steven Spielberg making this movie that I could tell he was just so passionate about and having so much fun making. And I just really wanted to be a part of that. You know, uh, I am not surprised at all by your answer. Folks, (laughs) you got to come out to the DC Black Film Festival so that you can see this film and you will know why I'm not surprised. Um, There's so much influence in it and we'll get into that in a second. Uh, but Austin, if you could, let's just get a little backstory. So take me from, you know, the guy that's the kid in 10th grade that's like, wow, Close Encounters of the Third Kind is amazing to, you know, the man who's now, you know, creating Stevie's Aliens. How did you break into the industry? So I, so at the same time I first watched that movie, I was making a lot of, uh, you know, short films with the camcorder with my brother and with my friends from high school and, I, I guess at that point, I didn't, I didn't really know that that was a job that someone could have. I never really thought it through fully. Um, but then when it came time to look at colleges, uh, I, I, you know, I was looking at NYU and I realized they had a film school and I saw the sort of uh, material that was coming out of there and I really fell in love with it. And so 
I actually ended up attending a summer high school program there. And I really have to thank the like 50 or so kids who were there. It was my first time being around a lot of people who are so passionate about filmmaking. You know, my, you know, my, my friends uh, from home were always really helpful at the same time, you know, they're doing it because they, you know, like, you know, like, like me, but, you know, it's sort of like an obligation for them uh, <laughs> as opposed to the people at, um, at NYU. It's like, they're all just so super passionate. And so that made me really want to go there. And I did. And, while I was there, I met this whole community of great, great, uh, passionate students who are interested in all these different areas of the industry. And so, um, I, I'd always known that I wanted to make a movie kind of like this, like Spielberg film, but I was kind of worried that I wouldn't know the right people to do it. But, uh, through NYU, I, I just met all of these like, like perfect people who I really got along well with, but also who I really respected as artists. And we all came together to work on this. It's Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson. I'm talking with the writer-director of Stevie's Aliens, Austin Harris. Austin, you're right. Sometimes all you got to do is, you know, get around your collective of passionate people to really all of a sudden, you know, your, your body comes to life, the energy is there, and you really get focused. Um, and so speaking of focus, let's focus in on Stevie's Aliens. If you could, for the audience, uh, what is the film about in your own words? Um, it's really about faith and believing and connection, I would say. My, so I made it for an NYU class, and our professor had us choose one word to sum up our entire project, and belief was the word I chose. And, you know, it's about, you know, on, on like the literal level with this alien, it's about kind of believing in that, but also the main character, it starts with him being rejected from his top choice school, and at first he doesn't believe in himself, and through the events of the story, he learns to believe in himself, uh, and Julia, who is uh, Greg's girlfriend, who's very adamant about science and belief, she she goes on a journey of her own because she's her first forced to learn uh, to believe in things that can't be proven uh, specifically by science. So you know, one of the things that you know I always love about a Spielberg, you know, when you talk about Spielberg or it's Spielberg esque, I think some of the characteristics, um, there's a certain amount of mystery, but childlike um, inquisitiveness, that wonder. Can you talk a little bit about how, through your writing, you know, you infuse that into the movie? Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I always knew when I was writing this movie that I didn't want the aliens to be scary. I think that in a lot of science fiction films, you see a lot of really terrifying aliens, but uh, Steven Spielberg said something that fascinated me. He thought that if if UFOs were to come all the way to Earth, it would take so much effort that there's no way that they would come being hostile, that they would really you know, want to, to, I guess, you know, meet us. <laughs> and um, so I knew... I knew that I wanted these aliens to be sort of like wonderful. And I, you know, I was also thinking for myself personally, if I, you know, there's, there's a scene towards the beginning of the film where Greg sees this really bright light and it's the UFO and it is a really fun scene to film. But I knew that the look on his face, the people call it the Spielberg face, that like sort of look of awe on like your mouth that just like dropped open. And <laughs> uh, I, I knew that that's exactly what I wanted 
so yeah, I, I was trying to infuse that a lot. And I think also, I think the key, what I really learned from Spielberg, I think I really I kind of went to like the school of Spielberg basically uh, before I actually came to NYU. Uh, it, it just, you, you really have to focus on the people in your story and not the effects, I would say. And I'm really, you know, I'm really happy with a lot of the effects that we have in that film, but I always tried to focus more on how the characters were reacting to them. Right, which is was going to be um, my next question, just in terms of, uh, like you said, I think it's always about the people, right? Um, when we think about a Spielberg film, and let's, let's, let's drop Spielberg for a second, because this is an Austin Harris film. Mm-hmm. So when we think about a Harris yeah. film, <laughs> right, like mm-hmm. your cast and the way that uh, they, their chemistry, um, it, it really feels authentic. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of what also sells it because, right, our, the cast are our eyes in to the film. Um, and so I think you really you hit that here. Can you talk a little bit about how you uh, created the chemistry between the characters, your actors? Yeah, of course. So I, I was so fortunate that I found the people that I did, all three of them uh, were either NYU grads from Tish Acting or were still students. And um, a really good friend of mine, Kendra McCulty, she was my casting director. And so we combed through a lot of people. Aaliyah Quinones, who plays Julia, I knew her, and I had actually been in my first short film. So I, I, I all but wrote the part again before. She still came in red for it just to make sure that it would work out. But even when I was writing it, I knew that I wanted her to play that part. And uh, Ian Bouillon, who plays Stevie, I actually went abroad with him to London. He was studying at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art uh, while I was doing a screenwriting program. And so I sort of knew who he was as a person. Um, and I, I had a feeling that he'd be right for it. And actually, he read for the role uh, maybe like three or four different times. Uh, and I, I think I really knew that I wanted him once uh, in my audition process. We stepped away from the script and we did improv basically as the characters and he was just perfect but we had the most difficulty finding Devin uh, Mojiga who played Greg and I we we had you know auditions and no one was really like clicking for the part and actually my casting director she had a class with him and it wasn't even it wasn't an acting class it was just like you know like science or something like that and um he and he told me that he actually had been skipping most of the lectures and he decided to come to that one and she called him and she thought that he looked perfect and asked him if he was an actor and he was <laughs> and he came in and he he's just so charismatic and just he has a really great sort of funny but real way of reading all the lines and that's actually his first film too which i was completely shocked by and I think it also helped that he and Aaliyah were friends already. And so I think some of the chemistry you see between the two of them is definitely natural. And I mean, that was helpful for me as a relatively new director to, you know, have something to build their relationship on that existed already, because I think you can just, you can just, I think, see it. And I'm really happy that that comes through. I'm glad that you felt that way. (laughs) Yeah, most definitely. I'm Kevin Sampson. You're listening to Picture Lock. I'm talking with the writer-director of Stevie's Aliens, Austin Harris. Austin, uh, you can definitely feel it. And, folks, you guys will be able to feel it, too, at the D.C. Black Film Festival. Uh, Stevie's Aliens will be playing in our closing night film block 
Uh, so you definitely want to come out. Again, go to dcbff.org for tickets and information. But Austin, if you could, wrapping out here, how can people follow you on social media, find out more about the film? Yeah, so it's super easy. I'm on Twitter and Instagram, both as Austin S. Harris with an S and Sam. And my website is austinsharris.com. And I have lots of info about Stevie's Aliens on there. I have info about my other short films. And yeah, feel free to check it out. And yeah, I'm super excited about this film festival. <laughs> well, I'm super excited about having you. I'm super excited that I get to talk to the next Spielberg, Mr. Harris. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. All right, Austin. Well, thanks so much for coming on Picture Lock. Thank you for having me. Hey, everybody. This is Chad Quinn, the writer-director for The Love of Music, and you're listening to Picture Lock. It's Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson, and BPVB is a fully animated motion picture drawing featuring a clash between two superhero pop culture icons. It is a hand-drawn, action-packed romp with a twist that you do not want to miss. I have the creator of the animation, Omar Lewis, on the line. Omar, welcome to Picture Lock. Hey, how you doing, Kevin? Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure and an honor. <laughs> Man, I'm doing well. I'm glad to have you on. Omar, first question. I always start out with is, when did you first fall in love with film? But you know what, for you, when did you first fall in love with animation? Wow, um, I guess I would put it, uh, pick your first question. Um, so I guess the esoteric answer is from birth. I mean, you're born, life is a movie, we all star in it. If you're lucky, you get to direct it too. Um, but the layman's answer would also be from birth. <laughs> so single mom, uh, latchkey self-directed childhood and uh, you know tv cartoons movies that whole continuum of the 80s and 90s um in those genres and those mediums represented films for me so you know for me that was when you know when you're you're watching uh gi joe or beverly hills cop or aliens or uh you know any any of the the black power flicks of the 70s that you may grow up with that they showed on tv for me, that whole spectrum was film. And, you know, it kind of is something that sweeps you up in it. And, um, you know, you either, you know, fall in love with it or you just kind of just stay immersed in it as a, as a consumer. So for me, it was falling in love with, with it and trying to pursue it as a creator. Well, let's get into that because uh, your film will be playing as a part of our uh, Rise of the Black Superhero Closing Night block. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'd love to know kind of like, how you got into the industry and started doing uh, animation? Okay, well, um, I I was uh, I fell in love with comics like when I was young, when I was six. Read my first Hulk comic book, Hulk in the Savage Land, and he goes there and he fights the dinosaurs and meets Kazar. And uh, from there, it was kind of like a, a love story. Started drawing, painting at an early age. Got into the Fame School, uh, LaGuardia, Fiorello LaGuardia in Manhattan. Then I got into uh, Cooper Union, School of Visual Arts. And for me, uh, I never really looked at myself as a person who was aspiring to be a part of the animation industry, uh, per se. I just wanted to create culture. I wanted to create art. And I wanted to create an artistic culture that reflected really my identity. You know, um, if you think about all the black luminaries in animation, um, I'll, I'll pose a question to you. Who's your favorite black animator or black animation creator? Sanford Green. 
Oh, well, you have one. That's excellent. Yeah, 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 man. He's That's coming. He's coming. He's coming. Go ahead. Yeah, well, well, most most people can't give an answer. And for me, it was important to to fill a gap, uh, to create something that, you know, represented our identity. I created a children's book series called The Wonderful World of My Yacht. It was a fantasy adventure series created in, in set in ancient Africa. And I, I did an animated version of it. And, um, you know, I, I just kind of never stopped. But for me, again, animation is also about uh, an art and an aesthetic and a medium. And I, I, I don't consider myself a commercial artist or a fine artist. I consider myself an artist. So it was always important for me to create animation that had the sensibilities of art and that had the, the energy, the texture, the identity and expressiveness of, of people. Same way we have it in music. Well, okay, well, what's the musical equivalent to hip-hop or jazz and rock? And I think that's something that uh, as creators we can aspire to kind of cultivate, and that's kind of one of my missions as well. It's Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson. I'm talking with the creator of BPVB, which you can see on our Saturday night Rise of the Black Superhero block. The film will be playing at 7.49 p.m. Omar Lewis, Omar, um, you know, we kind of got to wrap things up, unfortunately, but if you could quickly just tell the audience uh, what the animation is all about, and then if you could let them know how they could follow you on social media and find out more about the film. Sure. Uh, BP versus B, these are acronyms. BP uh, stands for uh, uh, Iconic Superhero Character, who's recently be ma been made iconic. And uh, B is versus, and B is another iconic superhero character. I kind of used acronyms instead of using the names because I wanted to address the, the characters in, in, the, in the sense of the pop cultural iconography that everyone knows what it's about. Uh, you know, we live in the, the post-Black Panther era now, and we're kind of in the, the Black Panther moment. And I wanted to make a, a, a film that kind of identified that in a, in a tongue-in-cheek kind of a way and also kind of it empowered uh, us, you know, when, when we, to look at a, a, a film that addresses our cultural comment of the moment and puts it in the context of a, of a, of a larger moment. And also, it puts it in the context of other moments that exist outside of our culture. Uh, but that that being said, without getting too academic, you know, it's a fun romp. You know, <laughs> Black Panther versus Batman. <laughs> right. Black Panther versus Batman, <laughs> done in a very uh, high art aesthetic and kind of culturally and socially kind of aware kind of a context. And, it, and it's just a lot of fun. Awesome. So, so Omar, how can folks uh, follow you uh, on social media? Find out more about your animation online. Sure. Um, I have a YouTube channel called Drawn. Um, it's spelled the way you think it is, D-R-A-W-N. Go visit it. I'm always dropping films. I have an animated series um, that's out called uh, Batman vs. Black Man. <laughs> and, I'm, I'm always, oh, and, and it's featuring a, a, a film series called Tyrone. And um, I'm always dropping different films there and different content. So you can follow me there and it links you to my other social media. Um, I'll also be dropping a omarlewis.com website in the next month. But for right now, um, you know, see me on, a, on my YouTube channel, Drawn, and we'd love to see you there as well. Omar Lewis, the creator of BPVB. Thanks so much, man, for coming on Picture Lock. All right. Take, take care. and really, really a pleasure. You're doing great work, sir. Have a good day. An artificial intelligence implanted into the head of a girl born without a brain struggles between forming its own identity and the identity it was programmed to be. 
That's the premise of the film The Girl With No Brain, playing Saturday night, August 18th at the DC Black Film Festival. As the film's writer-director, Royce Adkins, on the line with me. Royce, welcome to Picture Lock. Thanks, Kevin, so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Man, it's my pleasure. I can't wait to crack into the film. But the first question I always start out with, Royce, when did you first fall in mm -hmm. love with film? Um, I first fell in love with film when uh, I think I was about six, and my parents took me to go see Toy Story. And um, I know that's not <laughs> kind of a, a weird uh, film for, for someone to, to fall in love with film. I feel like everyone, a lot of people usually pick like super deep films, but for <laughs> me, it was Toy Story. <laughs> no, that, but, but that's a classic, I, though. That's a classic. Right, right. It's a classic. It's a classic. And I just remember sitting in there and just being, wow, just, I, you know, even though it's 3D animated film, just being so taken in with the story and how that movie made me feel at that age and just knowing that like I didn't know exactly how I wanted to do it but I was like whatever however that movie made me feel that's what I want to do for the rest of my life mm. it makes a lot of sense man uh I have not gotten Toy Story yet but I mean that's okay I've gotten you know the Lion King and, <laughs> you know I mean but that 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 is yeah, a good yeah. film to say like it would be one thing if you were like Cabbage Patch Kids or something like. <laughs> I, I would question. I would question doing right. the rest of the interview. <laughs> just a tad, just a tad. But I mean, you know, there's there's things in in all types of films and stuff that touch people. You never know. <laughs> right, right, exactly, exactly. All right, Roy. So uh, you know, take me from the boy that was uh, enamored by Toy Story to the man that has created mm -hmm. a girl, uh, the girl with no brain. Yeah. So. um so after seeing Toy Story, I think it was either the that that year, that Christmas that year, or the Christmas afterwards, my parents got me um, that old um, black and white VHS recorder that used to be able to get at, at, at Toys R Us, and um, I just started making my little old weird home movies in black and white, and um, I just started falling in love with the process, even though I didn't really know the format of actually telling a story um, through film and recording. I was just hitting record and just recording myself being crazy. <laughs> and as I got older, <laughs> yeah, as I got older, um, I started to figure things out little by little, started to get more knowledge into film, watch more film. And yeah, just kind of grew and grew and grew from there uh, to the point where I eventually went to the Art Institute of California where I got my degree in film. And um, yeah, and that's how I got where I am now. Awesome. You're listening to Picture Lock. I'm Kevin Sampson. I'm talking with the writer-director of The Girl With No Brain, Royce Adkins. Royce, if you could, in your own words, what is The Girl With No Brain all about? Um, the Girl With No Brain is about um, an artificial intelligence that has been um, literally implanted, installed into the head of a girl who was born without a brain. And in the film, the main character's name is Miracle, the girl who was born without a brain. And the AI, um, its its whole life since its creation, has pretty much had to play second fiddle to Miracle, the actual physical girl without a brain. And um, pretty much the film is about the AI never feeling like it's never actually been recognized as its own identity, as its own um, living existence. Um, in a sense, and then uh, throughout the film, it kind of starts to on the on the birth of on the birthday of Miracle, the girl, 
um, the AI kind of starts to push back in, in, in a way where it's just like, well, hey, you know what? I'm tired of people not acknowledging my existence because the artificial intelligence itself is like I'm more than just being the driving force of this girl named Miracle. I'm my own identity, and it's time for people to recognize me as such. So I'm interested in how you came up with this premise and concept. What inspired you to write this film? Um, well, it all started, I actually read uh, an article, um, just kind of like going through like news and stuff, about, I read a story about a girl who, literally, who was born without a brain, this, this, this condition, and that it's actually real, um, and that her... Um, parents kept her alive till she was about eight years old and it was just this crazy story about how this girl literally lived without a brain for so long and like the, the amount of love that um these parents had for her to keep her alive despite everybody saying you know it was a waste of time you know they should let let go and things like that and really hearing the parents side of the story really moved me um to the point where you know they kind of got my brain going of like wow what you know the extent that these parents were willing to to go to not give up on their child you know what if you know, there was this thing where um, this this te- piece of technology where a, they, there's this brain that actually could have been implanted in this girl's head to where she could live a normal life. You know, what what would that look like? Would would parents with kids with these conditions actually consider doing that? I'm sorry. I, I am just lost in the fact, like, you got me hitting the Internet as soon as you said that, 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 that. Uh-huh. Someone being born without a brain is a real, uh, I didn't realize that. You know, I thought this was just stuff that they write on Grey's Anatomy. Um, but, right, right. <laughs> but wow, yes. So I, I totally see how. Yeah, it's the real thing. Yeah, exactly. And I, I, I can totally see how, like you said, um, I mean, as a parent myself, like how uh, so much love and, you know, just wanting and desiring to see, uh, you know, your seed just, just, live and and wow so so that makes a lot of sense but i i I say all that to say i think you totally nailed uh the core conflict here right which is that undying love uh for your your child and then when you throw in Mm -hmm. this artificial intelligence who wants to you know strike out be themselves there's conflict there and uh, I think that you really right. nailed that in the writing and the film overall. And uh, to the point where there is, a, a, I guess, kind of a climactic moment um, in which, you know, decisions have to be made. And the mm-hmm. way that you wrote the film and that the, the film plays out, once that happens, uh, it matters so much to us as the as, as audience member. Um, it, it, it's a mm-hmm. really a big trigger in terms of, you know, wow, which way are we going to go with this? Um, so c- if you could just kind of talk about uh, kind of writing and how you structured that uh, moment to happen. I'm not trying, I'm trying, obviously I'm trying to talk around it on purpose, but. Right. Um, yeah, well, first I want to say thank you for, for all that. I mean, I really appreciate it. I'm glad you liked the film. Uh, it really means a lot. Um, but as far as like the structuring it, um, to, I mean, to be honest, uh, I, I, you know, whenever people ask me these types of questions, it's always hard for me to break down the actual structure process I go through. For me, I kind of just, I kind of just take what what I feel as I'm writing, and I kind of just let it 
spill out, but um, for for that um, kind of climactic moment in particular, that actually went through a couple different variations and different um, ways to go about it to where um, it eventually got to what it is now. But it 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 took a lot of um, writing, kind of testing it. I would write it, um, and I would pitch it to family, friends. They would give me their feedback, and based on their reaction, I'd be like, okay, I think I got it. But then I'd try something else, and if the reaction was better, I was like, okay, I think this is the one. So, um, so yeah, it was, it was a lot of playing around, testing, trying different things, and not being satisfied with just my first initial gut feeling about it, if that makes sense. Totally does. It's Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson. I'm talking with the writer-director of The Girl With No Brain, Royce Adkins. Royce, um, again, I just I, I think uh, you did a great job in terms of creating a science fiction film that definitely has heart to it. Uh, so thanks again. Thank and you. if you could, let folks know, uh, how can they follow you on social media, find out more about the film online? Yeah, so a couple ways. You can go to my actual production website, uh, rockyeproductions.com. It's R-O-C-Y-E productions.com. A lot of people get confused. They think it's because my name's Royce. It's R-O-Y-C-E, but it's my name misspelled. I know it's confusing, but <laughs> R-O-C-Y-E productions. It is what it is. Hopefully you guys will figure it out. <laughs> um, and then also you can follow me on any form of social media that you're on. I'm on it at it at Roro Beckley, R-O-R-O-B-E-C-K-L-E-Y, at Roro Beckley. I'm on everything. You follow me and keep up. Well, Royce, look forward to seeing you at the film festival. Folks, you definitely want to check this one out. It's going to be a part of our closing night film block. Uh, definitely want to come out. Nice. I'm excited. <laughs> All right. Well, Royce, thanks so much for coming on Picture Lock. Thank you, Kevin, for having me. Thank you so much. And just to point out, like, this is my first film festival. I'm super hyped. That's why I got it. I'm trying to contain myself, but I'm super excited. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, man. I am so glad that we could be the first film festival. Uh, that lets me know that we are uh, upholding the mission. So that is great to hear. Um, and we can't wait to see you out there. Awesome. Thanks. Can't wait to be there. That's all for this episode. I'd like to thank my guests, Deanna Winkler, Austin Harris, Omar Lewis, and Royce Adkins for coming on the show. Be sure to catch up on back episodes of the podcast and subscribe in iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, Blueberry, wherever you catch your podcast. If you're a fan of Alexa skills, just say, Alexa, play Picture Lock Podcast, and I'll come right up. Feel free to leave a five-star review of the show as well. I really appreciate those. Just helps to get the show out even more. You can find Picture Lock on most social media. All social media is at Picture Lock Show. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, you can fill out the form on the website. This week's question of the week is, what's your favorite Spike Lee joint? Drop me a voicemail at 202-350-1351 or send me an email and let me know at picturelockshow at gmail.com or on any of Picturelock's social media pages. And I'll talk about it on the air next week. All music is done by Mike Guest, the producer 13. Make sure you follow him on all things social media. Grab those tickets for the DC Black Film Festival at dcbff.org. Hopefully I'll see you out there tonight. I'm Kevin Sampson. And until next time, I hope you stay locked on film.